This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. This is Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And, and it's this is 2018. Our first, our first recording sesh of the new year. And in fact, the first time we've recorded a podcast since like mid-December. Yeah. Which... A little rusty. Craig, I <laughs> don't remember what our podcast is about. So oh, can sure. you remind me and by extension... Anybody who decided that their New Year's resolution would be to listen to our podcast. Great. Welcome aboard, Andrew and other Thanks. folks. I'm glad uh, to be here. Each week, one of us reads a book and talks to the other person about it. We also talk about the author or the history of the book. It's not always a plot synopsis. Sometimes it's definitely a plot synopsis. <laughs> uh, our goal, it's just whatever we feel like talking about. Yeah. Our goal is to kind of give you a sense of the book. Um and along the way, like, make some observations about it that if you've read the book, maybe you're like, oh, that's a cool thing. Or I definitely disagree with that. And mm-hmm. if you've never heard of the book, then maybe you can, like, if someone references it at a party, you can be like, oh, yeah, is that the one where this happens? And right. then, then we did you a social favor because now you know. We're like weird, bad quiz or cliffs notes. I almost said quiz, quiz notes, notes, which is not <laughs> quiz notes is not books. But uh, yeah, we're obviously not literary heavyweights. We're just a couple of regular old guys reading regular old books. Trying to make our sandwich art happen. So this Mm -hmm. week, I... Yeah, you read a book. What'd you do? I read a book. What did you do? What did I do? I read The Crossing by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, This book was published in 1994. It is the second book of three in his border trilogy mm-hmm. which trilogies do typically have three yeah, things you know i get in the middle of a sentence sometimes and i realize the trap that i've laid for myself <laughs> and so all the pretty horses which won the national book award uh, among one or two other awards it was published in 1992 then the crossing 94 uh, followed by Cities of the Plain in 1998. Uh-huh. This book was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Lance. So thank you, Lance, for that, for supporting the show and recommending this book. Now, Andrew, we have covered Cormac McCarthy before on this here podcast. We did. Back in episode 118, I wow. read and did not sufficiently appreciate, apparently, <laughs> Blood Meridian. We got a few emails about how I did it wrong. That's fine. I guess I just didn't appreciate the unrelenting horribleness of the book. Yeah, we talked a little <laughs> not bit. Not of the book, not, but like the things that happen in the book, I yeah. guess. It didn't, I didn't vibe with it, which is fine. It just happens sometimes. If you've never heard of McCarthy, um, he is in the tradition, like you can trace a line to him that follows from like William Faulkner, except if William Faulkner were more interested in people just like, gutting each other and having Uh a terrible time um you may have heard of the book the road which was part of oprah's book club 
like 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah, it's back in 2006, and I think actually the last novel that he published. I mean, okay. he's, still, he's still around. Dude was he wrote, born in 1933, and he's still kicking around. Yeah, I think he, he wrote a screenplay or something in 2013. He wrote two, two screenplays, uh, one... Um, in 2011, one in 2013, there's okay. a novel called The Passenger that is apparently forthcoming. Sure. Let me he... see when that footnote dates to. <laughs> uh, hmm. Never. I'll, I'll it's never keep, coming. Um, he wrote No Country for Old Men, which was turned into a very successful film by the Brothers Cohen, I believe. Um, and... His first novel was in 1965, The Orchard Keeper. And then, Andrew, you mentioned we covered Blood Meridian, which I think was 80s, like 1985 or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so I think some of the uh, kind of violence that he is very well known for um, is actually in this book but not as intense we'll talk about that as we go on because i think that can be a barrier to entry for some folks um also his writing style is maybe not like you know it's not one in a million and other people do something like it but it is punctuation light (laughs) yes he is could say he is like he does not use uh quotation marks he doesn't really like to use apostrophes um Dialogue is just extra sentences on the page. Uh, it'll say like he said or she, or she said or whoever said sometimes, but sometimes it won't, and you just gotta deal with it. Because mm-hmm. here's do you want whatever. do you want to know a cool a kind of cool thing about the passenger? Oh yeah, hit me. Is this actually available? Apparently, in the Whitliff collection has um, a bunch of his papers, mm. and they have. The passenger, but access to it is apparently restricted until after the book is actually published. So I don't know what restricted means. I don't know how long they've had it. Sounds like a heist. But apparently, we need to get in there in Ocean's Eleven. This book, somebody or get Ocean's George Clooney on the phone, or Ocean's Eight. Let's update our cultural oh, references. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's get some Ocean's Eight up in there. Yeah, let's do it. Is Sarah Paulson in that movie? Why not? Why not? Um, Another interesting fact of his, uh, we talked about this on the previous episode, his first and I think only TV interview was with Oprah, which is kind of neat. He also used the same typewriter for almost 50 years. I got this from an article on shortlist.com. He used an Olivetti Lettera 32. Shout out to all you typewriter fans out there to write all of his fiction, screenplays, and correspondence from 1960 to 2009. It was then auctioned off by Christie's uh, for over $250,000. And then he replaced it with the exact same model that he bought for $11 in a newer condition. And that's what he uses to this day. <laughs> old writers are gonna old write, I suppose. Um, yeah. And we, as we said, we talked a little bit about last time. His real name was uh, Charles McCarthy. Did did we talk about why he changed his name? I believe, according to the Cormac McCarthy Society, he renamed it after an Irish king. He did do that, but you don't know why he changed it in the first place. No, I do not know that. It's because apparently he did not. There's this guy named Edgar Bergen, and he had a ventriloquist dummy named uh, Charlie McCarthy. (laughs) 
And so old Cormac did not want to be associated with this with this dummy. I think the modern day equivalent is if you had uh like if your name was also one of Jeff Dunham's puppets' yeah, names, then sure. you would you would change your name so people would not be like if oh, he had isn't like he that unfunny, really offensive, terrible ventriloquist with all the bad dummies. If he had like an Andy Cunningham or a Greg Getting dummy, like yeah, maybe Greg we, would, Getting. we would change our names so that we were not one of his dummies. Boy, Wikipedia says his style's been described as a dressed down, more digestible version of Don Rickles with multiple personality disorder, which is the worst sentence I have ever read. I need you to clarify that you're talking about Jeff Dunham and not Cormac McCarthy. No, I'm talking about Jeff Dunham. Okay. Okay, no. <laughs> good. Because <laughs> that would have been a bizarre turn for our first podcast in 2018 recorded uh-huh. together to take. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, this is... Uh, I have read The Road. Um, that's the only McCarthy that I have read, and I really enjoyed it. You read Blood Meridian, and I guess you got it wrong, as you alluded to before. I did it bad, and it's. I think it's just not my cup of tea, hmm. which is okay. Well, like, we've talked about our cups of tea before, and I'm just... I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the pro style. Maybe it's that it's just unrelentingly violent and and bleak. Which yeah, I can I can take definitely in my fiction, but like I don't know. It it needs to. There needs to be something else. Like I don't like watching that second Batman movie with with oh Legendary the Dark Knight because it's a bummer. Oh, it's, it's a, a pretty big bummer. bummer. There's no light and hope left in the world in that movie. And yeah. These days, especially, I just I need a little bit, just a little bit, That's just a shaft of of light, just rising up from the ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in what the Cormac McCarthy Society is up to, they recently shared a call for proposals from the area chair of the Cormac McCarthy Area of the Southwest PCA ACA Conference for paper proposals on McCarthy, and this is, I think, for an upcoming conference. Um, topics include Andrew, but are not limited to McCarthy and the West, mm-hmm. McCarthy and Apocalypse, mm-hmm. narration and historical imaginaries in McCarthy's work, narrative theory approaches to McCarthy's writing, gender and sexuality studies approaches to McCarthy's work, McCarthy and Hollywood, issues in film adaptation, neo <laughs> neoliberal discourse, and in McCarthy. What? Southern Gothic and its meaning now and horror in McCarthy. I was just struck by neoliberal discourse and slash in McCarthy. That one feels a little out of place. One of these things. <laughs> like, um, yeah, he's he's probably best known for his novels that are about the American West. Um, a lot of his earlier novels are also set in like Tennessee and mm-hmm, uh, Appalachia, mm-hmm. which is around where he grew up and spent a lot of his his early life. And then um, he lived in Spain for a while. He settled in uh, El Paso, Texas, which is near the border with Mexico. Yep. Um, and lived there for a couple decades. So that's where he comes by. Like I, I know in this book from research, there's like untranslated Spanish in it. I yeah. know that. Um, yeah, he's he is really obsessed with the idea of the of the American West. Sure, 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 sure. Um, and that's that's where he comes by that stuff. So we'll talk about how that relates to this book because it's this book is in direct conversation with the American West. Uh, after a short break, let's go. 
Craig, it's 2018. What are you going to do with your year? I've got a list of things I hope to do. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them involve just buying new pants. Like I've got some bigger goals and I've got it's some like week to week goals. goals. Sure. Yeah. Yes. But I don't have them in like a public forum and I'm not necessarily comfortable just reading them out on the street. Is there a way that I could share them <laughs> with the world? There is definitely a way. One of the ways you could do it is to use Squarespace, which is a website that helps you make websites. Um, you can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content, which is the thing that you are looking to that do. Is, that is. That is. That um, is. Sell stuff, promote a business, uh, announce upcoming events or special projects. And we both used Squarespace to make our wedding websites back in the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they're, they're going to help you do all that stuff by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers, um, lots of built-in e-commerce functionality, and um you'll never ever ever have to mess with any code ever like they make it really really easy to just cobble together a web page with a template plus your stuff just like put it together make a website out of it that sounds pretty good to me how should how can i take advantage of this wonderful offer (laughs) uh so you what what you're gonna do is you're gonna head to squarespace.com for a free trial and you're gonna play with it you're gonna check it out you're gonna fall in love with it i guarantee it um and once you're ready to launch you're going to use the offer code overdue to save 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain 2018 is not only coming it is here make it brighter with squarespace okay we're back a dinosaur story we're back <laughs> dinosaurs are everywhere they're singing are they, do they sing in We're Back a Dinosaur Story? It's, I don't know. It's not important. It's a children's book. I don't know if they sing in the book, but maybe there's a cartoon. We'll, we I mean, don't, there's a movie. We're there's not going to find out today because we got to talk Smith, about- Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson's in it, I think. We got to talk about Cormac McCarthy. So, Andrew, I read this book, but why don't you first tell me what it's about as a quiz? Because <laughs> I, I did some research because I wanted to know what the Border Trilogy was. Oh, so yeah. It's, it's, it's three books. Um, All the Pretty Horses, published in 92, which we talked about last time a little bit. Um, This book, The Crossing, in 94, and then Cities of the Plain in 1998. So uh, All the Pretty Horses and The Crossing are both like sort of kind of coming of age stories set in the American West. Mm -hmm. And then Cities of the Plain is the protagonist from both books getting together, teaming up, super group. Ooh, my understanding is that things don't go great (laughs) because it's a Cormac McCarthy book. Oh, no. Um, I also know The Crossing was long listed for the International Dublin Literary Award in 96, Mm -hmm. though uh, all the pretty horses like it it won the U.S. National Book Award and the National Books Critics National Book Critics Circle Award. Yeah. So I think that one got a little more like critical love. And this one maybe was seen as I think more of the same by reviewers. Not that that was a bad thing, but that it was it's very much in the same vein. Yeah, it's interesting. I found a New York Times book review that raved about it as I being do love this book. Yo, Robert Haas loved this book in 1994. Um but the Guardian review of it by Anthony Quinn found it a little lacking compared to all the pretty horses. So, let's just it is a book that is one third a novella and then like two thirds a sequel to that novella. So <laughs> um, 
I will say just it, there's there's not going to be a good way to just like do it organically in the book. Um, similar to Blood Meridian, he does use the word Indians for folks of native descent, both in uh, the United States and Mexico. Neo. And he there is one use idiomatically of the N word in this book, and it's Neo. not like it's not disparaging anyone. It's just a it's it is a bad idiom that you should just never use anymore. Um, so like for anyone reading this book, just that that's in there and I will probably, I, I will probably end up saying Indian in the context of talking about the story just because the book does. Yeah. We um, did that last time too. So, but I just want to recognize that that is probably not a thing that you would do if you were writing that book now, unless you were putting those words directly in the, in the mouths of your characters. Um, so yeah, it's the the book. This book takes place in the nineteen thirties. I, I know it's like end of depression into World War Two. Yeah, which is kind of an interesting. The whole first forty years of the twentieth century is an interesting time for Wild West fiction because you're coming out of the time you're, you're like, like coming, the Little House. Yeah, kind of like frontierism stuff. Yeah, the little little house I think is a little, little tamer than yeah. uh, Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. Typically, I don't think it's as no, it's I don't think like it's as violent as Cormac McCarthy scalping anybody or um, anything. But it is at this point where like the West is realizing that it's transitioning out of its like mythic state. Yeah, because right. we took it from the people who lived there, yes. and now it's ours. We want it. Yes, and the other thing that this book deals with a lot is the main character, Billy Parham. Uh, over the course of the book, he goes into Mexico three times. That is the titular crossing. He crosses the border into Mexico three times. Mm-hmm. And Mexico... This is the story of three spring breaks. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, he so So Mexico, at this point in time, is 15... Roughly 15 to 20 years out from the Mexican Revolution. So, you know, a lot of the characters... after or out like before? After. Um, Excuse me, yeah, after. So, Billy is meeting people who are still dealing with the ramifications of that. And, And that mostly manifests in terms of, like, bands of armed men who were formerly soldiers or in some sort of loose hierarchy that has kind of government authority behind it or um, families that are predominantly women that have lost the men in their lives and are now like scraping to get by. Now, now this book, like other McCarthy books, does not do a great job with women, mostly in that they're just non-existent. They're just kind of absent. Yeah, right. yeah there is one central to the plot, a uh, young woman that the two Parham brothers, Billy and Boyd, uh, like rescue at one point and she crops up two or three times after that but I don't even think she's ever given a name and as you alluded to it is there are, there are sections of untranslated Spanish in this book which I actually found really interesting um, I don't think she speaks English so there's that so she also doesn't speak as much as some of the other characters how like as a did you take Spanish in high school? You took French, right? Heck, how do I say heck no in French? <laughs> well, I, all right, heck great. no. I was um, gonna ask like whether you could like whether the language was kept simple enough that you could like understand it or or tease it out. But he I don't does know an interesting thing where some passages uh, 
you'll get someone who speaks in Spanish. They'll speak a sentence or two. Then they will slip into English. Um, Billy himself, his mother's mother was Mexican, I believe. So he is fluent in Spanish, as is his brother. Um, So he is able to converse with everyone that he meets and he dips in and out um, Uh as necessary. And sometimes in the same conversation, uh, as many of the other characters that he meets do as well. And so it'll be like one or two lines and then someone will either speak in English or it'll be a couple lines and then the like really loose third person narration will say the man said X, Y, Z, right? And give you give you that in English. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it to be a really effective device just to remind me of where I was and the different like... The fact that Billy was an American wandering around in Mexico for large portions of the book, just giving me quickly information about how people related to him um, and who he was and was not comfortable like extending English to or really conversing in Spanish with openly. Um, Also, if you're reading it in the Kindle edition, you can pretty quickly translate stuff if you're really like stuck. Oh, so sure. there there were a couple times that I was like, no, I just need to know what this word is, Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> and that, that's certainly on me for not knowing that language, but uh, I need to know what this word means. And sometimes it's something as simple as like a version of the word lie or misunderstanding that I just could not like glean from general romance language if it, like familiarity. Uh-huh. Um, but then there's enough stuff that kind of crops up over and over again that you start to figure it out. Um, so... The book, as I said, it's three journeys into Mexico, and the first one that you get is Billy has captured this uh, wolf, and I'm going to kind of walk it back from here, but um, there's this she-wolf who's roaming the lands in New Mexico, where Billy and his family lives, Mm -hmm. and uh, she's tearing up the cattle and, and eating the cattle, and so they have to go trap her. And again, the interesting part of this book that is like the, it's not the Old West, it's like the West in decline, the Old West in decline, the Wild Wild West in decline. Uh-huh, like is, the Wild Wild West is living memory. Like you remember Will Smith, you remember Spider Robots, but everybody it's not knows Wiki Wiki Wild, Wiki Wiki Wild, but they don't remember why. Like they can right. sing it in church, but they don't remember why they sing it. Um, they don't want none of none of this. <laughs> they don't. Rough, they don't. They don't want any of the Rough Riders. Um, the the only guy in their small town who like probably would have been able to trap this wolf has long since disappeared. They don't know if he's dead. His house has all of these like old wolf traps and like wolf scents and lures in it. And Billy and his dad end up like raiding it for supplies, um, even though they don't, they think maybe he's dead, who knows. Um, So like the era where this would have been a problem that was easily solved has passed. Um, And Billy gets this kind of wild hair that he's going to go out there and catch this wolf. Um, His brother Boyd is, I think Billy's 16 and Boyd is like 14, 14 or 13. And Mm -hmm. Boyd doesn't get along as well with his pa as Billy does. You're never quite told why. Uh, That's left kind of vague on purpose. 
I think in all these all these Western fiction books, like the Pa character is usually a distant, high functioning alcoholic who yeah. is there to like treat you, teach you how to be a man, and then like not relate to you at all. The, yeah, I don't know that he's even explicitly like a rough dude in that way, except that he does like he will disappear for long periods of time because it takes a while to get places or mm. um i don't know what wars he may or may not have served in kind of thing um but yeah boyd does not get along with his dad billy gets so well gets gets along well enough and his dad is like hey go out there and try and catch this wolf um one thing this is reminding me of reading Redfern Grows, Andrew. Like, there's all these steps in trapping that I just would never have thought to be a thing. Mm-hmm. So the big one in this book that I learned is that you need to boil the traps so that they're clean for the animal. Sure, because there is nothing worse than getting killed by a dirty trap. <laughs> I don't think that's I, I think it's that you don't want any lingering scent on it. Yeah, no, that was going to be my non-joke answer. Yeah, is that you, I bet when animals get trapped they are putting out all kinds of like fear and angry hormones that you would not want all over your trap. Yes. Uh or maybe they're like rusted so you got to boil the rust off or something. Um so it's just interesting and before they catch her you get you get a like a camera switch to like over the wolf's shoulder in a way. I'm just going to read this to you because I, I I thought it was a cool jump. So after we've boiled the traps, we're getting ready. All of a sudden we're here. She wandered the Eastern slopes of the Sierra de la Madera for a week. Her ancestors had hunted camels and primitive toy horses on these grounds. She found little to eat. Most of the game was slaughtered out of the country. Most of the forest cut to feed the boilers of the stamp mills at the mines. The wolves in that country had been killing cattle for a long time, but the ignorance of the animals was a puzzle to them. The ranchers said they brutalized the cattle in a way they did not the wild game, as if the cows evoked in them some anger, as if they were offended by some violation of an old order, old ceremonies, old protocols. So basically the wolves are messing up these cattle because the cow are so dumb and and like domesticated it's the wolves are a metaphor for being mad that the west isn't wild anymore <laughs> yeah sort of and actually and and as i was researching i found like a couple critics sort of um i mean they criticize i was trying to think of another verb so oh, i have to do yes that. sure but um the role of the wolf in the story partly Interesting. because of partly because of billy's relationship with it which i don't want to like step on your toes so why no don't that's you... fine oh do you oh uh, yeah i'll talk about that i was gonna let you talk about it and then come back to my thing. okay that's a great yeah. idea um wow this is the first podcast that we've recorded in 2018 okay um (laughs) yeah typically it's like i'll talk for a while and then you'll talk for a while and we'll uh make a conversation conversations are hard and then we post it on the internet and people are like (laughs) i liked it i guess or this sucks they giggle too much that's true i do giggle too much that's just a fact of life Mm -hmm. um before he catches the wolf Billy does go to another old man in the area who may or may not have known this guy. I think his name is Mr. Eckle. E- yeah, Eckle. Um, it's a different guy that he ends up with. And this is one of the first like prolonged conversations with someone speaking Spanish that 
does what I was alluding to earlier. Um, but this guy ends up telling Billy about like kind of philosophizes about who wolves are and what men are as hunters and the difference between the two. He said that the men, there's a quote, believe the world, the blood of the slain to be of no consequence, but that the wolf knows better. He said that the wolf is a being of great order and that it knows what men do not, that there is no order in the world save that which death has put there. And he goes on to kind of wax poetic about the wolf as kind of a pure expression of the world, um, that if you catch it or domesticated it it's it ceases to be a wolf it ceases to exist almost in a way uh so that by the time that billy does find it in a trap he has succeeded the wolf has one leg in a in a trap and it's kind of the its flesh is being pulled away from the leg of the wolf um billy decides not to go get his dad he decides not to just shoot the wolf but instead it's pretty dope he like lassos the wolf around the neck and then ropes it up over a branch so that he can put a bit in the wolf's mouth. And then he decides that he's going to take the wolf back to Mexico. Okay. And it's, it's this like Don Quixote, quick, like quixotic journey that he just like, based on what he has learned about the world and what he is feeling about this animal as a hunter. Uh, the wolf is also pregnant, and I, that doesn't really factor into Billy's decision-making, um, but it does factor into some of the plot points. Um, he is going to take care of this creature and take it back to where it belongs. And I think in this case, like as you joked about the, the West not being wild anymore, there is an element of Mexico that is seen as still a bit more wild, and, and maybe that's where this wolf belongs. Okay. So go ahead with what you think of what you've read about the relationship with the wolf. Um, mostly that the, okay, so this, there's this person who is quoted, they wrote, they wrote a paper called, um, narrative disruption as animal agency in Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing. So get that PhD. Um, they argue that the wolf's literary agency becomes visible when Billy's way of thinking about the wolf conflicts with the way the narrator describes the creature. So basically, Billy's like romanticization of romanticization. How how many sure. syllables? Yeah, that, that one. That one. Um, his <laughs> his feelings about the wolf and what it represents are not. Uh, I don't know. Are not necessarily reflected by the way that the wolf acts or that's is true the story. Yeah, yeah, his his reverence for the wolf as a wild creature is is at odds with the fact that he has to basically turn it into a big fancy dog right <laughs> so like he then spends this novella like taking the wolf south um uh-huh. meeting people along the way who are like yo you know that's a wolf right what are you doing um and some people who want the wolf I'm going to talk about that in a little bit um so yeah that I think it's a it's an interest that I'm sure that that the author of that paper has done a pretty good job if or at least a very thorough job of finding ways that like Billy isn't really living up to what he is aspiring to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a quote later in the book that um, 
kind of sums up the thesis. Doomed enterprises divide lives forever into the then and the now. Uh, I think that starts the second chapter of this book. Um, and so Billy decides to do this thing with the wolf. He doesn't see his family for months. And the wolf thing doesn't work out great. Like, yeah, I could have told you. <laughs> I'm going to take this wild, dangerous animal that I trapped. I'm going to take it back to Mexico, even though it doesn't. Surely it does not understand the concept of borders or like come up here for a reason or anything like that. Now, but the problem is, is that he and the wolf, like at least from his perspective, become good friends. Like they hang out next to the fire and he talks to the wolf and tells it about his life and Does sings the to wolf it. Seem interested in this? Or? No, the wolf seems like this sucks. Fire is scary. I would like to leave, but it doesn't really have a choice. Um, he just wants a dog, I he, think. Well, he really just does. He does just want it. Uh, he does have a dog back at home, but nobody likes that dog except Boyd. Um, he does get the wolf back to back to Mexico, and unfortunately, it gets captured by some. It, it gets taken from him by some dudes who are, I guess, former soldiers or uh, who knows. Um, and the this is one of the parts of the book where you like expect it to be some of the tension comes from you like wondering when and if it's going to be like a gunslinger book where like, what if Billy just goes down South and like kills anybody who crosses him and like does whatever he wants with his wolf. And like, no, he quickly is that outnumbered would be kind of par for the course for a Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's interesting that like these moments that ratchet up in tension, a lot of them actually end with just Billy having to be like, Nope, you got me take my wolf and I'm going to be mad about it and like deal with it later. Um, so every time that there's usually like a big dramatic explosive violent thing or whether or not it's a violent thing that happens to Billy, it comes after like three or four near misses, um, which is interesting because it keeps it from being unrelenting in the way that I think even the road is unrelenting. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly as you experienced blood meridian. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, this novella with the wolf ends with the wolf in like trapped in a dog fighting ring and the dog like they're forcing the wolf to fight it like two dogs at a time. And it's sort of winning because, you know, it's a wolf, but also some of the dogs and the hounds that they're putting in there are getting increasingly strong. And Billy ultimately like he can't walk out of there with that wolf. He has to. Uh, kill it. All right. Well, good job, Billy. Mission accomplished. And then he like has to sadly take the wolf out of there and bury it. And it's this. It's really moving. And it's this. It it feels like a complete story. And this is what I alluded to at top. Like he gets the wolf and he has to leave his gun behind and he's got his horse and he rides back and he buries the wolf. And then, like, that's the end of the first section of the book. And then there's a lot more book. Like, I was, as it was happening, I was very shocked because I couldn't believe it was happening as early in the book as it was. Huh. Um, so then he becomes this kind of wayward dude wandering around Mexico for a few months and uh, meeting different people along the way who are noting that he is wayward and this is where i think the book can get 
a little too windy for some people and certainly as some reviews have talked about and I think the again our good friend Robert Haas in the New York Times just like loved this stuff uh-huh I probably come down in the middle I, I really dug it in the at the time but I, I don't know if it's all gonna stick with me so the book has this device where um, all the time Billy's just meeting people on the road and sometimes it's like he has no food and people are like, you're dirty. Here's an enchilada. Like it happens <laughs> like multiple <laughs> times. Uh, and sometimes he finds this really unique like structure. Like he wanders into, he sees this like, it looks bombed out. It's not bombed out, but it's like falling apart church. And he meets a, a priest who's living there with all sorts of cats. And the cat and the cat priest like tells him a story about this, guy he met who had like this intense reckoning with God and it's like shaken this priest's belief in what God is or is not. Uh Um, And it's this, it it all, it feels like a little short story dropped into the longer narrative. And these kind of pile up over the course of the book. Um, And you and I were talking earlier today. One of the things that happens is that some of these stories are like, the more violent Cormac McCarthy things that happen. Um, but they don't happen in real time to Billy or someone he knows. They're being relayed to him secondhand, which give them like a weird distance so that they almost don't feel as gruesome. Okay. Um, with one exception that I'm going to get to after I tell you a key plot point. Okay, tell me that plot point, then tell me the horrible thing. So he wanders back from Mexico, he comes back to his house, and what do you think has happened, Andrew? He's been in Mexico for a few months, he went off on this wolf adventure, he comes home, it's a Cormac McCarthy novel. I assume nobody's there, and he doesn't know what happened, or they're both dead, and it becomes like Star Wars, or... So it is a little, yes, the little Star Wars-y. His parents have been killed, um... One of the people in town has been just (laughs) they walked away in single file. Yes, yes, yes. Um, His brother Boyd is still alive. Boyd never talks about what happened except to say that someone else in town said it was Indians. Here's the most that Boyd ever says about it. And so there's like for me, there's a pet theory here. That maybe Boyd and Pa didn't get along. At one point, here's the <laughs> here's the conversation, starting with Billy. You and Pap ever get your differences patched up? Yeah. About halfway. Which half? Boyd didn't answer. What is that you're eating? A raisin sandwich. And then they move on and they never talk about Wait, a raisin sandwich? They also never talk about what a raisin sandwich is. Okay, so he obviously patched up his differences with paw by 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 killing them patching up paw like i don't (laughs) yeah it's very possible that he patched up paw i don't know the book doesn't dwell on it boyd is an interesting like he's really surly to billy at times their relationship is not great but then they have to go back to mexico to get their horses so like somebody did steal their horses um whether or not boyd did anything like whether or not he settled up with Pa with a gun or not, um, somebody did take their horses and took them to Mexico because in the the middle of the book is the two brothers in Mexico 
tracking down these horses, both getting them and then losing them again and then yada, yada, yada. I guess um, I just get tired of this. Like no two men can get along for some reason trope in this sort of hyper hyper masculine western literature yeah that's an interesting point because they don't get along because they're brothers and there's stuff that's not being said and not to say that they're that doesn't solve your issue with this but i i think in context it makes sense that they are like soft-spoken everybody has suffered immense tragedy in this world so like no one is like effusive with good feeling right Uh um the people that meet billy and like never see him again share these stories i think because they will know they will never see him again so they can kind of like overflow with what their thoughts are um but billy and boyd have this unspoken like what are we doing here and sometimes it's funny like um at one point, uh, they're arguing about the fact that like they have these papers for the horses, like par- property papers, and no one in Mexico will recognize them. And Boyd says, uh-huh. papers ain't worth a damn nowadays. And Billy says, I know it. And Boyd says, I'm a hungry son of a bitch. <laughs> and Billy says, when did you take to cussing so much? And Boyd <laughs> says, when I quit eating. Because he's hungry. <laughs> so he cusses now, I guess. I feel like this is a Snickers commercial. <laughs> Yeah, like when the guys turn in Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they're f- they're the writing can be charming even if they're not getting along. Um, but I do think you're you're right to point out that there is like a hyper masculinity to this world where most people will never get along because man is inherently evil. Um, or just like violent and non-verbal, and the only way to solve. Any problem, even if it's not really a problem, is just uh, just just kill him. Just kill him if you don't want to deal with them. No big deal, whatever. Yeah. So I I was struck by the number of problems that don't get solved that way. Um, at one point, as I alluded to earlier, they Billy and Boyd come across a young woman on the road. They see two guys after they pass her. They see two guys coming the other way, and they're like, mm, "We should go check on her." Of course, it is good that they checked on her. She was taken by those men nobody dies in that fight uh but they do have to like run off and basically be fugitives for a while there's another scene late in the book where like there's a really tense encounter with a drunk guy at a bar and you don't know why he's mad but you can feel that he's mad at billy and it never rises to a gunshot but like you're waiting for like probably 10 pages for uh-huh. someone to get shot. Uh-huh. And it is. It's surprising, I think, in a way that I found satisfying. Um, though I I could also, if you're like, if what you're coming to McCarthy for is for people to get lit up, then you might find parts of this book unsatisfying or disappointing. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so there, there, violence does come to Boyd after they track down uh the horses and boyd gets shot and and the other so like there's this moment of extreme violence but then like billy carries boyd down the road to run away from their attackers and he just tosses him in the back of a pickup truck with a bunch of dudes like a bunch of day workers and they totally take care of him and Mm -hmm. they like boyd a lot and they like end up building a legend around who this guy was that they saved so there are people in this book who are kind and are hospitable yet 
they are more than willing to wax poetic about how bleak the world is and how maybe like God has it out for us. Sure. <laughs> and maybe the past is like, uh, we can't do anything about it and we shouldn't, we can't find solace in that, but we shouldn't do anything about it either. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is bleak, but there are also people doing good things. Um, so the, the other violent thing that I want to talk about in this book, because it's the most Cormac McCarthy-esque thing that I encountered in this entire book, is while Billy is trying to track down Boyd after he tosses the wounded Boyd in that pickup truck, he comes across a house where there's a woman caring for an old blind man who has no eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And he was a prisoner during the uh, revolution when there was this German captain who was like lining people up and having them shot and some captives he didn't do that to. So like this is going to, this is hmm, something else. So just like (laughs) buckle up. Okay. I'm buckled. Um, the guy, the German guy is walking along and he's like eyeing up the captives and he eyes up this guy that Billy later meets. The German then did something very strange. He smiled and licked the man's spittle from about his mouth He was a very large man with enormous hands, and he reached and seized the young captive's head in both these hands and bent as if to kiss him. But it was no kiss. He seized him by the face, and it may well have looked to others that he bent to kiss him on each cheek, perhaps in the military manner of the French. But what he did instead, with a great caving of his cheeks, was to suck each in turn the man's eyes from his head and spit them out again and leave them dangling by their cords, wet and strange and wobbling on his cheeks. I don't like it. Later, the the man refers to being able to see his own mouth. No, I don't want to hear about how you can see your mouth. Oh, my God. It's pretty rough. That's... uh, Oh, no. It's brutal. And it's it was surprising to me in that nothing that brutal happens to any of the, like, primary characters in the book. Nothing that brutal happens in the present tense in the book even though like people do have like life-altering injuries and some people die kind of they just don't get their eyeballs stuck out of their head like somebody's trying to (laughs) and it's like why does that happen i don't know that character then does go on to say some pretty like interesting stuff about what it is to move through the world as a blind person um yeah i bet they do have a really interesting perspective (laughs) after that i'm glad they're making the best of it and 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 then the woman that's caring for him shares this story where, as she was growing up, all the people, like many people in her family, had been killed by like bandits or soldiers and stuff. And there's this like multi person funeral. And then the gravedigger pulls her aside as she's like crying and is like trying to calm her down. But he says stuff that's like, uh, the notion that evil is seldom rewarded is greatly overspoken. For if there was no advantage to it, then men would shun it. And how could virtue then be attached to its repudiation? Sure. So, like, evil has to be a little bit stronger or at least more appealing. Cheaters have to prosper sometimes. Because then how would we know that it was good to not cheat, I suppose? Uh That's a... that's. I don't know if that's how I would finish the thought. Yeah. I think you just say, like, yeah, sometimes 
evil people do get ahead and get away with it because they do. Like, there's no <laughs> lesson. It's just... Yeah, so, like, thematically in the book, I'm trying to, like, circle in on this as, as we close up um, eventually, is that there is this sense that, like, what are we able to ascribe meaning to? And this is where the book is like postmodern, not just in its form, because I actually think that save for his lack of punctuation, it is a relatively straightforward book. Like mm-hmm. it's not postmodern in a way that like, uh, or modern or whatever for, I don't know which one is more appropriate, but it's not like Foster Wallace where it's like mixing media. It's not like laying words out weird on the page or jumping around in time. It actually just feels like a Southern Gothic or like a Southwestern Gothic story that happens to have bizarre punctuation. Um, But it gets kind of postmodern in the sense of like everything he does on the road, like is it meaningful or not? He has both really short interactions with people and then he has these longer interactions where someone like, tells them about their eyeball story and then their thoughts on what that means for God. And you never know which one is going to, when, when each scene starts, like you never know which one is going to like ultimately add up to something. Billy doesn't, he runs into people multiple times in a way that both seems like unbelievable and perfectly believable. Like, Mm -hmm it's hard to know how small or large this world is. So there is an element of providence to that. Um, and it's just like, there's a, there's a parable at the end of a, of someone who is looking for this like plane that their child, that their you know, I think adult child, but their, their kin crashed in and they don't know which crashed plane is the one. And ultimately does it matter as long as you find this item that is important to your understanding of like your loss. Sure. Um and then then the the third act is then Billy's version of that where he has suffered his own grief and he goes back to Mexico one last time uh to find someone in a way that is similar to what he does with the wolf and it goes this like darkly comic messed up way that ultimately is like man you should have never gone the in the first place why did you do any of this mm-hmm. and that's kind of bleak yeah. that is the, that is the part of this book where you're like what am i supposed to take from this and and after having already experienced that with the wolf novella um <laughs> I, I don't know exactly why you need more except that the repetition like is thematically linked to like this will always happen. Like there are people who talk about the land being cursed. There are people talking about history repeating itself. Um, yeah, it's 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 a bummer. It's not, it's just it sounds like you enjoyed it, but you didn't need as much of it as there was. I think. Yeah, and maybe yeah, sure. I mean, maybe it's the case that it started life as a short story and then he expanded it. And I think sometimes that can be done gracefully, and sometimes you can tell where the seams are. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah, we honestly, don't, I couldn't I'm, find a lot about like yeah. the publication history. I think partly because McCarthy doesn't like he just doesn't talk about that stuff ever. Like he doesn't give a lot of interviews. He says 
He told uh, Oprah when he did that interview with her that he does not know any writers and prefers the company of scientists. <laughs> okay. So there's just not a lot by way of like his process or the, I don't know, the structure that we can use to. To glean extra know, information. To get some, yeah, get some insight about things. Yeah, there's there's stuff in the book that I really like and that I hope I remember. Like um, the earlier story that I was alluding to about the priest encountering this guy who like has this revelation about God. That story is really, that's in the, I think that's in the first section after he's lost the wolf. Um, that has some really interesting stuff in that story where like certainly there's just a phrase where this guy uh has lost his kid as bandits like ran through his town that he was in and he is described as he was but some brevity of a being which is just a really good sentence Cormac mccarthy like you just described someone who is so consumed with grief that they are like separated from the human race in <laughs> uh eight words i guess uh-huh. um and then that story also culminates in this questioning of what God is or is not as like, if life is this tale that is continually being told, it needs some sort of audience or witness. That is God. Okay. Then what or who or can anything be a witness to God? And what does that like? There's this intense tragedy that this person envisions for what God is where like it can never be seen it can never differentiate itself from anything else and maybe that's why god is so terrible and causes such injustice and it gets like pretty dark in a way that like the logic drives some people mad um and it it feels endemic and and feels organic to the world of this book sure um and then there's also to go back to the to the first thing we were talking about after the break is just that like it being set in the late 30s and 40s is an interesting time frame because the the other passage that I found it, like striking, I hadn't seen anything like this before, was when Billy is back in America after the second passage, uh, second border crossing, he like tries to enlist for World War II because he's just like he needs something to do and he's turned away for like a heart murmur or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but this like, he's trying to engage in some sort of understandable like purpose or heroism or something, um, which you also see every time he's south of the border is like, there's this like, when is the part where we're going to be cowboys is like <laughs> kind of an open question and they kind of fail at every step. Um, so that's a, that's, I, I guess that's a thing that is obviously like Western fiction decades removed from, the your john waynes and stuff of the world mm-hmm. where like american myth is folding back in on itself um and that's a lot of what mccarthy is like these bleak westerns that are not like hey we're the good guys and those are the bad guys and train robberies and stuff yeah it's not like the sheriff and the bandits like beating each other out it's like i don't know these people like there's no frontier left so we all just have to kind of figure out how to live regular lives and it's not going great yeah and and as you mentioned earlier there's a sense there are some native characters in the book that like talk about the fact that they maybe should feel a kinship with mexico because the yankees are bad but also they don't feel like but also Mexico isn't their country either. And, and what are their relationship to someone like Billy who's wandering around in both spaces? 
Um, yeah, that's the crossing. He loves animals and also loves causing violence to them. He thinks they're like cool. He he thinks they're like pure expressions, or they're presented as pure expressions of nature, and perhaps then God from there. But they also get the shaft all the time. It, they're mostly there to teach humanity lessons about how bad animals are. An, is. Yeah, animals are there to be complicated metaphors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the crossing, Andrew. I don't. I think you would have liked it more than Blood Meridian. Well, we'll never know. Now we'll never know. That's probably. True. I mean, I could always read uh, the Pretty Ponies book or what, whatever. Yeah, the, that's the first one is called. Yeah, the, it, if if we're ever gonna do a third McCarthy. Uh, our own should, McCarthy trilogy. It should probably be that, or you may be reattempting the road. Um, but if our listeners have any other thoughts on McCarthy, uh, they should hit us up on social media or at our email address, which is overduepod at gmail.com. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash overduepod, and Twitter is twitter.com slash overduepod. Nice. Uh, we've gotten some folks reaching out in the last couple of weeks, even with the holiday break. So thanks to Michael, Catherine, Rebecca, Emily, Carrie, Charlotte, Ninja Kate, Kara, Glenn, William, Robin, Sophie, uh, Aaron, who gave us that wonderful photo of Andrew's Beauty and the Beast whiteboard. You can check our Twitter <laughs> feed for that. Uh, Brittany, Christy, uh, Dion, Jacob, Cheyenne, Tara, Erica, Michael, Gloria, Gary, and Carolina, who says she found us on Spotify, which is a way that you can find us now uh, if you haven't already. And they're one of the listeners that has let us know that like they like to listen to episodes of books they've read before or they go read a book and then listen, which is a totally valid way to enjoy this show. Um, Andrew, if folks want to know more, if they've if they've never heard about us before and they need to learn about us, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet destination for all things Overdue. Up there, we've got links to iTunes, Google Play, and RSS. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out. Uh, we release every Monday and then also bonus episodes every couple of months. Um, we've got links to the social uh, pages that Craig mentioned. We've got Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read that you can click and, and, and we get a cut of that. It supports the show a little bit. Um, we have our full January schedule up now uh, through the end of the month, including the bonus episode. Um, Craig, do you want to do you want to just should we just like run through that? Um, sure. I, yeah. Let me Let's pull that it. up real quick. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next right. week. Next week. Next week. I am reading The Secret by uh, Rhonda Byrne. And we're going to tell we're going to crack this thing wide open. I'm going to tell everybody the secret. Then I'm tackling the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. And I'm reading The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. And then our bonus episode is on The Crane's Dance by Meg Howery. Check it out. More info on bonus episodes at patreon.com. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so I don't think I think that's it, right? That's it. No big show news right now, but we might have a few things to share with you on Patreon and some other stuff in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope that this helps you get your 2018 started off right. And until we see you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.